Before I get into the teaching of the text this morning, let me uh, say just a quick word to, uh, especially our members, y'all have noticed the, uh, the boxes up here and they're filled with uh, the hardwood floors that we're going to uh, take the carpet out and put the hardwood floors in. And I just wanted you to know as members, you're getting an upgrade and it's virtually free. And what I mean by that is Elaine Shaw's, uh, the money that was given for her in memory of her, uh, the Shaw's have agreed to use that money. And then I have went out and raised money outside of our church to be able to do this upgrade for the church without it costing the church. And, uh, and that's the plan. And uh, so I wanted you to know that in case you felt like, now, I didn't vote on that, and I, don't, I didn't, you know, don't feel like it, it wasn't, we didn't take from you to do that. Hopefully, everything we spend on it will be uh, money that was coming from outside and not inside the church. So we're excited about that. I'm excited about that. If you know me, you know that I'm excited about that. Um, I also want to say to some of you that maybe are visitors, and then just a reminder for the others, what we try to do here, and I borrow this phrase from someone else, is to exposit what I would call expository exaltation. And what I mean by that is I want my desire, whether I do a good job of it or not, is up for debate. But I try to exposit the scriptures, to open the Bible like uh, what was just read, and teach that text to you, and do that week in and week out. The opposite of that would be I get up here, and I read the text, and I tell some funny stories, and I get you all laughing, and you walk out of here and go, he's hilarious, that's a great pastor, I'm coming back next week. My goal is to stay connected to you, not be boring but to teach the Bible so that when you walk out, you don't say he's great. You say God is glorious. God is glorious. That's expository exaltation. So we just sang songs. You might say that was our worship time. I would say, nope, that was part of our worship time. What we're about to do, I think, is center center and center cut to the worship time. Now we open the word of God where he has spoken to his people and we learn and we exalt him because of what we see in his word. And so it's all worship. The preaching of the word, the hearing of the word, the receiving of the word is worship. So now we enter into this time of worship together where we open the Bible and we look at what God has said and we gain understanding and hopefully the prayer that I have is it leads in your heart to exalting him. And I choose and pray and hope to make much of him every time I'm up here. So let's pray to that end. <clears throat> Father, would you be made much of we believe that we live in a time where many don't even believe you exist, where many uh, have such a small view of you 
that you're not engaged in our daily lives. But Father, we come together as a body of believers who believe that that is not true. That you are supreme over all things. That you speak to your people through your word. And even now, in these next few moments, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and you would speak. And Father, our hearts would exalt over the truths we find in your word this morning. To that end, we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to, we, uh, David read from John 15. We're going to look at the very last verse in John 14, because the very last verse in John 14 sets up the context, and no text is a true text without a context. In Bible study, we must see the context to really understand what's happening. And so in John 14, 31 is where we're going to look. But in John 14, what we have already looked at is that Jesus tells them, I'm going to the cross in John 14. And he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And he also washes their feet as an act of servanthood and showing them that he came to serve and not to be served. So all of that has happened in 14. And the disciples at this point are kind of depressed. They're they're concerned. They're worried. And so Jesus has begun to tell them, don't worry, guys, I'm going to send a Holy Spirit. I'm going to send my spirit. He's a helper, and he's going to come to you. So he says that in 14, and uh, he says that in 15. In Mark's gospel, not John, but in Mark's gospel, we're told that the, the disciples are together in the upper room. And now in our text, so while they're up in the upper room, Jesus has told them all of these things. Peter's denial, the Holy Spirit's coming, uh, on and on. And then y'all know what they do right before they leave is they pose for that picture that we've seen that Leonardo da Vinci painted. So it's like they do all that, and then Jesus says, all right, everybody line up, get around here, and let's pose. And they, they, they take the, the Last Supper picture. Y'all know that that's actually not even the way it was. There was no table they, they dined around very small, and they would sit on cushions with their legs behind them. So the whole picture that was painted in the 1490s is absolutely inaccurate. Culturally, not the way it was. Didn't look anything like that. But they pose, and then in 1431, look with me in your Bibles, it says this. Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he says, and this is what I wanted to get to, rise, let us go from here. So they've been up there in the upper room for a while. And he says, rise, let us go from here. And so the picture that I want you to see is they come down from the upper room into the Garden of Gethsemane and it's nighttime. And so could you imagine, I think this is probably how it played out. It's nighttime, the moon is shining on these 
vines, and Jesus grabs one of the vines, and the 11 are with him. Judas has already left to go and get the betrayers that is later going to come in the garden. And Jesus says, you see this vine, guys? And then he goes into John 15, 1 through 6. As he's holding this vine, he says this, and you can look with me. It says, I am the true vine. So he's holding that vine in the moonlight, and he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be more fruitful. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That last little section there is troublesome. Do you understand why that's troublesome? He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. Who did he say the branches were? Them. And so some read this text, and what they conclude is that you and I, being Christians, that are attached to the vine, the vine being Jesus, we can be broken off, isn't that what it says? Thrown into a pile and then thrown over here and burned. That's problematic because that leads you to believe you could be a Christian and lose your salvation. That's kind of how the text reads. Matter of fact, that's the way whole denominations understand that text. So, how do we understand this text? That's where I'm saying it's problematic. We need to know what it's really teaching. And my goal is that before I'm done, you'll understand what Jesus is saying here. To do that, we're going to look at what are the relationships in this text and what do they represent? What are the relationships in the text and what do they represent? No, up front, <clears throat> this is a metaphor. You can't take metaphors further than they were intended to be taken by the one who uses them. Or else you'll distort the metaphor. But it is often, it's very clear in this metaphor, Jesus says, I am the vine. Now, this is interesting because in the Old Testament, Israel has been compared to the vine and has been called the vine. In Psalms 80, verse 8, this is what it says. 
You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations with that vine, which is Israel, and you planted it. So Israel has been called the vine, not just in that text, but in several texts in the Old Testament. So here are these Jewish disciples. They come down from the upper room. Jesus grabs the vine and he says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. So in their minds, if you think about the original audience and what they're hearing, they knew the Old Testament. They're probably thinking, hang on now, aren't we the vine? I thought you said in the Old Testament, we're the vine. Now you're saying you're the vine and we're the branches. So the Jews probably, and the disciples in that moment, are trying to get their head around, what is he exactly saying here? Because that isn't what we've always heard. And he goes on. Jesus is the true vine, is what he's saying. Israel has been used in the Old Testament. And this is important to get to really understand your Bible. And it's, it's glorious. I mean, it's glorious. Jesus is the true vine. And in the Old Testament, God set it up where there would be shadows, or you could even say foreshadows, of God's redemptive plan that over time he was going to unfold and reveal. And so the Bible uses, and theologians sometimes call it, progressive revelation. Meaning, he starts in Genesis in time and space, and he reveals progressively, God reveals who he is, who the Redeemer is, who Christ is going to be progressively throughout the rest of the books of the Bible. If we just had Genesis, our understanding would be so limited about who God is. But he gives us 65 more books progressively revealing himself to us. And so, in the Old Testament, Christ is compared to the high priest. But he, Jesus, is the true high priest. And so you get shadow and then substance, the true thing. The same thing happens. You remember what they would do for the Passover? They would take a lamb and they would slaughter it. And the people of Israel would put the blood over their doorpost so that when, the, when God passed over and all of the Egyptian firstborn were dead, the blood from the lamb was their salvation. Jesus is that true lamb. That's no mistake. They gave a foreshadow and then they gave the reality. Then you have Jesus is the true manna from heaven. God gave them manna to eat. Jesus comes, he's the true manna. God gave them bread and he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then Jesus says, I am not just water, I'm living water. And now in our text, he says, I'm the true vine. All of these shadows, types, becoming reality in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. And so, 
God's church, with Jesus as its head, fully realized all the Jewish people had figuratively represented. The Jewish people figuratively represented, and Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And to me, there's a stunning prophetic beauty that should help us trust and believe our Bibles, that all of that was built in from three to 4,000 years ago and comes to fruition in Christ himself, you see. There are, I said, what are the relationships here? And the first one is Jesus is the vine. The second one is the branches are the followers of Christ. So Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. But here's where it gets tricky and you kind of got to follow me. There's two types of branches in the text. One branch, at least in one of the translations, is called the barren branch. And then the other branch is called the fruitful branch. Two types of branches. The third relationship that we see, so you have the vine is Jesus, the branches are the followers, and the vine dresser or the uh, gardener, the father is the gardener, and he prunes. The gardener prunes. In verse 2, it says that he prunes that the fruitful branches will bear more fruit. And then he says also in verse 2 that they'll bear, they'll bear fruit, they'll bear more fruit, and then in verse 5, they'll bear much fruit. Now, the question is this, as a Christian, why is the Father pruning the branches? The first answer is that we would bear fruit. He wants fruit from his people. But the second answer and the more the fuller answer is found in verse 8. The Father is glorified by the fruit of the saints. The Father is glorified when his people bear fruit. And that's the ultimate reason. So, basically you get this picture that the branch's job is to abide in the vine. And the vine is Jesus, correct? Here's the problem. Many who call themselves Christians fail to abide. Another word is remain in Christ. Instead of being attached to the true vine, many are attached more clearly to their bank account. Instead of being attached to the true vine, many are attached to their education. Instead of being attached to the vine, many are attached to popularity, to fame, to personal skills, to possessions, to relationships. That's what they're attaching themselves to because remember, the vine is feeding life nutrients to the branch. The only way the branch stays alive is it abides 
in the vine. But many of us that call ourselves Christians are actually attached to something other than the true vine. We're attached to our bank accounts, our popularity, our jobs, a, a myriad of other things that we attach ourselves to. And here's, here's a kicker that's even harder. Some think the church is the vine. Some think the church is the vine, and they attach themselves to a church. But a church can't save you. Only the vine saves. The vine is Jesus Christ. So John uses the word abide in his writings, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John and Revelations. He uses that word over 50 times. And he uses that word 11 times in John 15 alone. We are to receive from the vine, from Jesus, life-giving nutrients, the sap, if you will, of the Holy Spirit flows through the vine into us, the branches, and by that, he is able to live his life and display his power through his people, the branches. But if we don't abide, what happens? Now we're back to the problem in this text. He cuts away the dead branches. The scriptures teach that he cuts away the dead branches. So who is it that's being cut away and thrown into the fire? What's crazy is they look like believers in Christ. They're even, in this metaphor, attached to the vine. In some way. So we need to ask the question ever so carefully. What I'm saying is people's souls are at stake on this one. Really. What we're asking is, given what Jesus has clearly taught in the Gospel of John... That a person needs to be born again, he said to Nicodemus in John 3. Can you be born again and then be lost for eternity? Our text begs that question. Because it appears some branches are tied into the vine, but then they are broken off and thrown into the fire. And the fire in this metaphor is hell, lost forever in a place called hell. So can a person be a child of God and then not be a child of God? Our text is making us ask that question. My answer is a resounding no. And here's why. Not just because I don't want it to be that way, though I don't, 
But the Word of God could not be more clear on this issue. And the way we know that is not necessarily from just to our text today, but from text all throughout Scripture. And let me give you some examples. Jesus labors to teach the opposite. He labors to teach the opposite. <clears throat> In uh, John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I raise them up on the last day. And then John 17, 6, Jesus says, Yours they were, talking about the Father, they were yours, Father, and you gave them to me. And then probably uh, even most clear, in John 6, 39, I lose nothing of all the Father has given me. I lose none of them. And then John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And here's it, here it is. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So, <clears throat> our eternal security is embedded in the person and the promise and the work of Christ, not in us. And praise God for that. Because I'm a sinner. And I could really mess it up. If you could lose your salvation, I'm certain I would do that. But God says no. That cannot happen to a true believer. But then this still begs the question, doesn't it? So who are these branches? They have the appearance of being believers, but they're not. So it's kind of believers who are not true believers. And this is where it gets really careful, and I really want you to hear because I think Jesus was saying, even, even then, 2,000 years ago, I believe because he's omnipotent and he knows everything. He had First Baptist Church Chattahoochee in his mind at that moment. My experience tells me that in every church, almost without exception, there are some sitting in the pews with the outward appearance of being true Christians. But if we could see what the Father sees, the vine dresser, we would see that there are false branches here that one day he will prune and they will be thrown in the fire. So who is this branch that is in me and is lost? He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The key is to realize that in the gospel of John even, 
there are believers who are not true believers. One example is John 6, 66. It says in John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He calls them disciples. Many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. And then if you go to Matthew 7, 16, Matthew says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Matthew 7, 16. You'll recognize them by their fruit. But here's, here's where this is the, the common straw man that I run into all the time. Somebody will say to me from Matthew 7, but Clint, judge not lest ye be judged. And then I remind them, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, a spiritual man discerns all things. A spiritual person discerns all things. I don't judge. I don't say, I know you're going to not be in heaven. You're going to be in hell. That is judging. But I do say, the fruit in your life does not look like one who is abiding in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. When I meet somebody, and we all know those people, and all I see is hate and a lack of joy and anxiety and a lack of peace, and they're impatient with everybody they come across, and they're unkind, and they're not good, and they say, but I go to church. Follow me on this, if you will. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes me a hamburger. That's ludicrous, isn't it? I go to McDonald's and now I'm a hamburger? No, that's stupid. What are you even talking about? I go to church, so I'm a Christian. No, that's stupid. What are you even talking about? You know what the Bible says a Christian is? One who abides. One who remains in him. One who bears the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience. And some have said it this way. You know how we know who the Christians are? And this may trip you up. It's those that turn out to be one. Because if God has really come into a person's life and done a regenerating work in their heart, and this is the point, they will, because they've been changed from the inside out, display the fruits of the Spirit. But when I meet someone that has none of that, I, not just as a minister, but as a Christian, am responsible to say to a brother, based on Galatians, brother, I don't see fruit in your life. And we need to risk confrontation 
if that is the case. Why? Because their soul hangs in the balance. We can't just say, well, that's none of my business. You know, judge not lest ye be judged. Baloney. That's not what that text is teaching. But that's the verse that I heard even my non-Christian father quote to me. I can't tell you how many times. He didn't know the meaning of the verse. Listen to 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And then 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So abiding in his word is essential to knowing where you are with the Lord. If he has done a work in your heart, it's not that you prove, and this is, this is so critical, I don't know how in the world unless the power of the Holy Spirit comes right now and helps you see this. You do not prove that you're a Christian by doing good works. God does this work in your heart, and because he's done that work, you begin to do good works because it's coming from inside out. But see, the problem and the reason we have so much hypocrisy in the church and the reason we have so many religious people. I told a group of people the other day where we used to live, they were saying something about me being a pastor. And I said, I'm not a religious person. And they just stopped in their tracks and said, you're not a religious person? You're a pastor. And I said, well, what I mean by that is I am a follower of Christ. I am one who wishes to abide in him. To me, religion smacks of hypocrisy. Religion to me kind of means I go to church, therefore I'm earning my salvation, and I think I'm a Christian because I'm doing all the right things. That's religion. Religion is you trying to earn your way to God. Biblical Christianity is God has reached down and by his grace has saved you. That's biblical Christianity. That's not religion. So I'm going to switch gears for two, three minutes, and I'm going to close. Now, what about the fruitful branches? It says the Father prunes the fruitful branches so that they bear more fruit. So the sun is flowing from the vine into those branches, and then from, that's from the internally, that branch is growing because the sun is flowing into it. But then externally, the Father is doing a whole other work where he's pruning. Now, most of us probably didn't grow up with olives or grapes, uh, but I, we can imagine the pruning work. But what I want to emphasize is that pruning means cutting. Cutting 
just implies pain to me. And I think that that's really what is happening. And probably the best exposition of the Father's work in pruning is found in Hebrews 12, verse 6. It says, For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. He disciplines the one He loves and chastises the ones He receives. When our kids were little, now they're all three in college, at least for the next month. Two of them graduating in May. Amen. <laughs> but when they were little, you know, uh, Peggy was good about disciplining them. But there were times where Daddy had to do the discipline, you know, where when your dad gets home, I want you to be in your room. Your dad's going to come home and talk to you. And uh, y'all know how that plays out. So when I came in, we believed that it was important to discipline our kids. And, uh, and some of that involved uh, spanking. I'll probably get arrested and go to jail. <laughs> um, and we never beat our children out of anger. That was not the case. It was out of loving discipline. But I could tell when my son or daughter, whoever it was in that case, when I walked into the room, I could tell they could hardly look at me in the eye and they felt this shame over what they had done. It was easy to see it in their body language. And so I would sit down there, maybe on the bed with them, and we would talk about what they did, and we would pray together. And then I would say, but you know your actions have consequences, and Daddy is going to discipline you now. And I would discipline them, and I promise you, and I see it in children and I see it in adults, the moment the praying and the discipline was over, you know what they did? They'd hug my neck and they would say, oh, Daddy, I love you. I'm so sorry. I love you. I won't do it again. Because the shame had been dealt with, which I think was important. And they had paid, their, they had been disciplined for their disobedience, and now the fellowship was back. And they wanted me to know that they loved me. Our Father is pruning. Some of us are undergoing such pruning that it's hard to imagine how you bear up underneath that pruning. I know that. And we weep with you. But I want you to know if you're his child, that pruning will not be wasted. It will not be wasted. Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. What pruning 
What wave is throwing you against the rock of ages? Because you know what God's ultimately after? Even in the pruning, even in the waves, is union, oneness. He's looking for that child who's going to come back and hug his neck and say, oh, I love you, Father. And I can, I can receive this pain because I know you love me. And I know you're good. And one day, this is all going to make sense. Even if it doesn't in this life, one day it will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the pruning. Though it hurts, we trust you're in it and you're for us. God, would you make us into the image of your Son that you would receive much glory for our good and for the sake of the nations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.